But if malaria could be eliminated, there's an unbelievable amount of hardship which would be avoided, and there will be increased prosperity. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm Julia, and today I'm joined by two new co-hosts on the podcast, Gina Lim and Will Poland. Africa is a continent long plagued by malaria. Each year, the disease kills nearly 300,000 African children under five years old. But on October 6th, the WHO approved the first ever malaria vaccine. 30 years in the making, the RTSS vaccine has already shown success in field trials. But before it can make an impact, the focus is on vaccine rollout, getting expensive doses from production to rural areas in developing nations. To examine this further, joining us today on the podcast is Dr. Peter Augury. Dr. Peter Augury is currently the director of the Johns Hopkins Malaria Research Institute, overseeing scientific training and research efforts in Baltimore and field studies in Zambia and Zimbabwe. His focus lies in the molecular aspects of human disease, including blood group antigens and malaria. Dr. Augury is the recipient of the 2003 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for discovery of the aquaforin water channels and was named the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor in 2014. Dr. Peter Augury, thank you so much for joining us on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you. I'm delighted to be part of it. Awesome. Uh, Before we delve into the impact of this historic vaccine, uh, can you first provide us with a brief history of Africa's struggle with malaria? Where in Africa is malaria most prevalent, and who is malaria affecting the most? Well, Africa has struggled with malaria as long as humans are known to live in Africa. It's particularly difficult in the sub-Saharan Africa and in the northern parts of Zambia and Congo, uh, throughout Central Africa, Gabon, Ghana, Nigeria and Congo together make up for probably a third of the total malaria in the whole world. And it's a problem of all ages, but particularly deadly for small children and for pregnant women. So, as you said, malaria is a problem disproportionately affecting Africa and the developing world. So, like, estimates show that there are, like, approximately 250 million annual cases of malaria in Africa, sharply contrasting the 2,000 annual cases in the United States. Solutions like bed nets have limited effect, and I just wanted to know, why is it so hard for Africa to control this disease? Well, Africa is an enormous continent, and the countries, uh, we look at the map of Africa, we don't don't think that Zambia is a, a particularly large country, but it's actually bigger than Texas. Congo is one and a half times the size of Alaska, and so it's, it's enormous, and it is very hospitable to mosquitoes, the, the, the warm temperatures and the very wet surroundings. So it's, it's a, an ideal setup to have trouble with mosquito-borne diseases. And we're currently really happy to finally see hope with the WHO's approval of the RTSS vaccine. Um, the vaccine has shown promise in recent trials in Ghana, Kenya, Malawi. Can you speak on how this vaccine came to be and how it works? Do vaccines usually take 30 years to come to be? 
No, it, it certainly is a, a difficult project in large part because malaria is not a simple virus with a dozen or so genes. It's, it's much more complicated. It's a unicellular eukaryote and has 5,500 genes making tens of thousands of different kinds of proteins. The parasite undergoes three changes of, of costume during the cycle of a, within the mosquito and in the humans. So it's a very wily foe. Um, vaccines normally don't take 30 years, but this was a very difficult one. And it still has a long way to go. And for our listeners who don't really have much of a background in science and vaccines, could you give a brief overview on how this vaccine works? Yes. So the, the malaria in the mosquito salivary glands is injected into our skin when the mosquito bites. And it's specifically the female Anopheles mosquitoes that are the danger. Male mosquitoes don't bite. Mos female mosquitoes bite because they need hemoglobin from blood to digest into amino acids for protein synthesis during egg development. So the form of the parasite in the salivary glands is called a sporozoid. And it has sort of a spiral shape, and it has an abundant surface protein called circumsporozoic protein. So that would be the first outer surface of the parasite that would be immunologically vulnerable to attack if we had antibodies circulating in the, in the lymph and in the bloodstream at the point of the first mosquito bite. So the circumsporozoite protein has been studied extensively and has a complex structure with an a area of call that are referred to as repeats. It's a similar amino acid sequence repeated many times. And that is theoretically believed to be the most immune vulnerable part of the molecule. So the, the vaccine is a manufactured vaccine, starting with the DNA encoding that repeat structure from the circumsporozoic protein. Uh, a synthetic molecule was made with surface antigens from the hepatitis virus, which causes this particle to form a virus-like particle. And it was a result of many years of testing and then to improve the immunogenicity. And it was a very expensive undertaking. And so it, it, it went on and on. And one of the reasons the vaccine uh, for our listeners is so exciting is because it's the first ever WHO-approved malaria vaccine, especially for children. Uh, Dr. Agri, what is the importance of this vaccine in the fight against malaria? Well, as you said, it's the first approved vaccine for treatment of children, and it's the first vaccine that has worked. There have been reports in the past of vaccines that were never confirmed. And this one has been studied extensively, and it has clear activity against the malaria parasite. There's no previous vaccine to a parasite. Parasites are, as I said, much more complicated 
and have not been vulnerable to, <clears throat> excuse me, have not been vulnerable to uh, a vaccine raising antibodies within the, the host organism, the patient. And what will the vaccine distribution process actually look like, uh, getting shots from production to people who need it most? Yes, this, this sounds simple, but everything in the rural parts of sub-Saharan Africa are more, are more difficult. They don't have the infrastructure, well-paved roads, constant electrical currents. And so the medical plan is to provide a, an immunization and then at three-month intervals give three booster shots. So it's a, a repeated process. So each, each subject must come back multiple times to the clinic. And each required visit is essential for the, the full vaccine efficacy. Even so, after the immunization and three boosts, the immune response is not complete. When they studied thousands of children in multiple different African countries, you mentioned three, um, it showed that fewer children would become infected if they were immunized, but it was only about a third fewer. And when they looked for the severity, severe malaria, which is what kills children, about a, a third less severe malaria. So when we talk about the COVID vaccinations with 90% efficacy, that's strong, very strong. When you have 30% efficacy, it means two-thirds of, of the subjects and will still get severe malaria. So it's it's clearly better than nothing, and given that this will need to be given to millions of children, we will save lives, but we won't save all the lives. It's not the end of the story. It's the first partial victory. And the Global Vaccine Alliance is known to help distribute vaccines to much of the developing world. Uh, could you speak to how the Global Vaccine Alliance, also known as Gavi, plays a part in uh, delivering the malaria vaccine? Yes, well, Gavi is a United Nations, WHO, <coughs> pardon me, organization, and it gains support from the Global Fund, that's the donor nations, as well as philanthropic donors, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they're sort of the the politically neutral organization that looks out for vaccine development. If, if this was left up to all the countries raising their own vaccines, there'd be much less progress, given that these are massive undertakings, particularly than when a vaccine is being delivered. So Gavi, as the Vaccine Alliance is referred to, G-A-V-I, is this is the these are the good guys. And doctor, I recently read um, in an article that some researchers are actually anxious that this vaccine would cause already underfunded malaria control measures such as insecticide programs or functional health systems. Um, they're already underfunded. This might even take um, more of the attention away from that. Is that a 
valid um, point? And is there anything that we can do to prevent this from happening? Well, these are very good questions you're asking. In fact, there is concern that the, the expense will come at underfunding of other efforts, and we, we really can't allow that. I mean, there's, there is now a pandemic which has caused economic hardship. That said, there's still more money in the, in the economies of the countries of the world now than there has ever been in history. And so it's a matter of making it a priority. Uh, of course, when these children become infected in places like Congo, the, the, the country is large, but it is, not, it is not rich. It is rich in potential wealth. There's believed to be somewhere in the range of $80 trillion of precious metals and natural wealth. But the economies of countries like Congo are are very in, inadequate and leads to extreme poverty. And organizing anything in cities of extreme poverty becomes complex. And doctor, I had another follow-up on the obstacles that are prevent that show with the malaria vaccine. So with other prevention methods such as bed nets, there's concern that those methods might not be used in concurrence with the vaccine as it is seen as redundant. Is this a legitimate concern, and what is being put forth to prevent that? Yes, this is a legitimate concern. So education is important, and programs that lead to education will improve the understanding so that the, the people in the rural settings will know that they, they really must continue with the bed nets. Now, insecticide-treated bed nets can keep mosquitoes off children while they're inside sleeping. But if they leave the dwellings, leave the bed net off of them while they're sleeping, they'll be bitten. And there are some mosquitoes which are indoor dwellers, and there are many others that prefer outdoors. So a bed net by itself can help, but it's not going to change everything. It's like a seatbelt in a car will contribute to your safety, but there's still many other things that need to be controlled. Yeah, then although this vaccine is important along with other preventive measures, as you mentioned previously, it is certainly not the end of the fight against malaria. Do you think this vaccine will catalyze a new era of malaria vaccine research and creation, especially towards better treatment? Well, we live in uncertain times. I, I I think this vaccine, if it is ruled out appropriately and the funding is made available, will make a dent in the malaria. So you, you're aware that there are a quarter of a billion cases of malaria every year, and there are approximately 400,000 deaths, mostly small children. You can make a dent in that and still have a lot of malaria left. The progress since the millennium, the last 20 years, has reduced the number of deaths. It was about twice as high 20 years ago. But it has not reduced the number of cases of malaria, even though some countries have been removed from the list of malaria. The countries that are still infected are in some places getting worse. 
So it's still an enormous challenge, and we frankly are going to need all of the all of the weapons possible. A vaccine on top of a widespread use of bed nets with indoor residual spraying so that mosquitoes can't survive entering the dwellings, as well as aggressive rapid diagnosis and treatment, all are, are going to be needed. And I think with proper organization, and this means eliminating corruption and inefficiencies, we could make more progress on malaria. But it's a challenge, and it's going to require the efforts of young scientists like yourselves. This is not a, a disease that's going to disappear overnight. And to move us to more broader view, it's been said that malaria breeds poverty and poverty breeds more malaria. And for the last five or so decades, this statement has certainly run true for part of the African region. It's been mired in economic turmoil and political stability, instability. Um, in your opinion, how much of a role has malaria played in the continued poverty and inequity of much of Africa? Yes, malaria has been a major factor. Uh, the families that live in the rural outback are many of them living as subsistence farmers. These are the people that we read about that are supporting themselves on less than a dollar a day. They, they don't have improved housing and running water and all of the things that we consider essential. And because of that, they're, they're really vulnerable when anything comes along. It'll take all of their attention away. And uh, there have been estimates that maybe as much as a quarter of the economic activity of some countries is dissipated because of malaria. And Dr. Augury, uh, along similar vein, I read that you yourself are very experienced and a strong proponent of what's called science diplomacy. Now, for our listeners who are very diverse, some of them are in science, some of them are in international relations. Um, could you tell us a little bit about science diplomacy? What What is its goal and what are some of your experiences with it? Well, it's it's um, an enchanting idea that we can use science to break down the barriers between countries. And so we have science that will drive partnerships between countries. And we also have scientific opportunities that arise when nations choose to work together. And it basically is a system that works because of understandings which are the result of scientists working together. I think this is one part of the U.S., one feature of the United States which is widely embraced abroad. When surveys are done, there are a lot of skeptics around the world where, where the, the people are alienated by the United States. I think it may be a reaction to the wealth and the and the power, the perceived arrogance. But when people are questioned about U.S. science and technology, this is microelectronics, agricultural research, architectural science, uh, 
the response is very positive. All of these governments would like to embrace U.S. science and technology to lift the economies and the, the fortunes of the people of their country. It's, a, it's an opportunity. As a scientist or as a medical person, uh, it's very much easier to get invited to a country where our relations are not favorable because we're not trying to sell something or we're not trying to bring negative factors into the relationship. We're, we're there to establish education and use this for the well-being of the, the individuals. It's, it's a wonderful way for, I think, countries to enhance their, their relations, and it's, it's a very positive it's a very positive activity, and it, it's oftentimes viewed as very affordable to teach scientists in developing countries scientific skills. It's a good investment. Needless to say, I'm a very enthusiastic proponent of science diplomacy. And for people who might have a tougher time envisioning what that looks like concretely, do you see a role of science diplomacy in reaching a an eventual malaria-free Africa? And what does that look like? It will certainly require consistent and generous support from the donor nations. And it's going to also require increased commitments from the endemic countries. I think with the existing technology, if we had efficient use of the medicines and the techniques to prevent malaria, we could reduce the malaria burden considerably. To drive it to zero is, of course, the dream that we hope to achieve, but this will be a very difficult process, and it's likely to take future generations. But if malaria could be eliminated, there's an unbelievable amount of hardship which would be avoided. And there will be increased prosperity. Doctor, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to participate. I appreciate very much your interest in malaria. This is an important problem, which is going to be here for a long time, I'm afraid. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University, and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.